Book One, Chapter One, Part Three of Armadale. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Winteroud. Armadale by Wilkie Collins. Arrived in London, Mr. Brock found himself unexpectedly face to face with a new anxiety. The unwelcome subject of Ozias Midwinter, which had been buried in peace since the beginning of December, rose to the surface again, and confronted the rector at the very outset of his travels, more unmanageably than ever. Mr. Brock's position, in dealing with this difficult matter, had been hard enough to maintain when he had first meddled with it. He now found himself with no vantage-ground left to stand on. Events had so ordered it that the difference of opinion between Allan and his mother on the subject of the usher was entirely disassociated with the agitation which had hastened Mrs. Armadale's death. Allan's resolution to say no irritating words, and Mr. Brock's reluctance to touch on a disagreeable topic, had kept them both silent about midwinter in Mrs. Armadale's presence during the three days which had intervened between that person's departure and the appearance of the strange woman in the village. In the period of suspense and suffering that had followed, no recurrence to the subject of the usher had been possible, and none had taken place. Free from all mental disquietude on this score, Allan had stoutly preserved his perverse interest in his new friend. He had written to tell Midwinter of his affliction, and he now proposed, unless the rector formally objected to it, paying a visit to his friend before he started for Paris the next morning. What was Mr. Brock to do? There was no denying that Midwinter's conduct had pleaded unanswerably against poor Mrs. Armadale's unfounded distrust of him. If the rector, with no convincing reason to allege against it, and with no right to interfere, but the right which Allan's courtesy gave him declined to sanction the proposed visit, then farewell to all the old sociability and confidence between tutor and pupil on the contemplated tour. Environed by difficulties which might have been possibly worsted by a less just and a less kind-hearted man, Mr. Brock said a cautious word or two at parting, and, with more confidence in midwinter's discretion and self-denial than he quite liked to acknowledge even to himself, left Allan free to take his own way. After whiling away an hour, during the interval of his pupil's absence, by a walk in the streets, the rector returned to his hotel, and, finding the newspaper disengaged in the coffee-room, sat down absently to look over it. His eye, resting idly on the title-page, was startled into instant attention by the very first advertisement that it chanced to light on at the head of the column. There was Allan's mysterious namesake again, figuring in capital letters, and associated this time, in the character of a dead man, with the offer of a pecuniary reward. Thus it ran. Supposed to be dead. To parish clerks, sextons, and others, twenty pounds reward will be paid to any person who can produce evidence of the death of Allan Armadale, only son of the late Allan Armadale of Barbados, and born in Trinidad in the year 1830. Further particulars on application to Messrs. Hammock and Ridge, Lincoln's Inn Fields, London. 
Even Mr. Brock's essentially unimaginative mind began to stagger superstitiously in the dark as he laid the newspaper down again. Little by little, a vague suspicion took possession of him that the whole series of events which had followed the first appearance of Alan's namesake in the newspaper six years since was held together by some mysterious connection, and was tending steadily to some unimaginable end. Without knowing why, he began to feel uneasy at Alan's absence. Without knowing why, he became impatient to get his pupil away from England before anything else happened between night and morning. In an hour more, the rector was relieved of all immediate anxiety by Alan's return to the hotel. The young man was vexed and out of spirits. He had discovered Midwinter's lodging, but he had failed to find Midwinter himself. The only account his landlady could give of him was that he had gone out at his customary time to get his dinner at the nearest eating-house, and that he had not returned in accordance with his usual regular habits at his usual regular hour. Alan had therefore gone to inquire at the eating-house, and had found, on describing him, that Midwinter was well known there. It was his custom, on other days, to take a frugal dinner, and to sit half an hour afterwards reading the newspaper. On this occasion, after dining, he had taken up the paper as usual, had suddenly thrown it aside again, and had gone, nobody knew where, in a violent hurry. No further information being attainable, Allan had left a note at the lodgings, giving his address at the hotel and begging Midwinter to come and say good-bye before his departure for Paris. The evening passed, and Allan's invisible friend never appeared. The morning came, bringing no obstacles with it, and Mr. Brock and his pupil left London. So far, fortune had declared herself at last on the rector's side. Ozias Midwinter, after intrusively rising to the surface, had conveniently dropped out of sight again. And what was to happen next? Advancing once more, by three weeks only, from past to present, Mr. Brock's memory took up the next event on the 7th of April. To all appearance, the chain was now broken at last. The new event had no recognizable connection, either to his mind or to Allen's, with any of the persons who had appeared or any of the circumstances that had happened in the bygone time. The travelers had as yet got no further than Paris. Alan's spirits had risen with the change, and he had been made all the readier to enjoy the novelty of the scene around him by receiving a letter from Midwinter, containing news which Mr. Brock himself acknowledged promised fairly for the future. The ex-usher had been away on business when Alan had called at his lodgings, having been led by an accidental circumstance to open communications with his relatives on that day. The result had taken him entirely by surprise. It had unexpectedly secured to him a little income of his own for the rest of his life. His future plans, now that this piece of good fortune had fallen to his share, were still unsettled, but if Alan wished to hear what he ultimately decided on, his agent in London, whose direction he enclosed, would receive communications for him, and would furnish Mr. Armadale at all future times with his address. On receipt of this letter, Allan had seized the pen in his usual headlong way, and had insisted on Midwinter's immediately joining Mr. Brock and himself on their travels. The last days of March passed, and no answer to the proposal was received. 
the first days of April came, and on the seventh of the month there was a letter for Allan at last on the breakfast table. He snatched it up, looked at the address, and threw the letter down again impatiently. The handwriting was not Midwinter's. Allan finished his breakfast before he cared to read what his correspondent had to say to him. The meal over, young Armadale lazily opened the letter. He began it with an expression of supreme indifference. He finished it with a sudden leap out of his chair and a loud shout of astonishment. Wondering, as he well might, at this extraordinary outbreak, Mr. Brock took up the letter which Allan had tossed across the table to him. Before he had come to the end of it, his hands dropped helplessly on his knees, and the blank bewilderment of his pupil's expression was accurately reflected on his own face. If ever two men had good cause for being thrown completely off their balance, Allan and the rector were those two. The letter which had struck them both with the same shock of astonishment did, beyond all question, contain an announcement which, on a first discovery of it, was simply incredible. The news was from Norfolk, and was to this effect. In little more than one week's time, death had mown down no less than three lives in the family at Thorpe Ambrose, and Alan Armadale was at that moment heir to an estate of eight thousand a year. A second perusal of the letter enabled the rector and his companion to master the details which had escaped them on a first reading. The writer was the family lawyer at Thorpe Ambrose. After announcing to Alan the deaths of his cousin Arthur at the age of twenty-five, of his uncle Henry at the age of forty-eight, and of his cousin John at the age of twenty-one, the lawyer proceeded to give a brief abstract of the terms of the elder Mr. Blanchard's will. The claims of male issue were, as is not unusual in such cases, preferred to the claims of female issue. Failing Arthur and his issue male, the estate was left to Henry and his issue male. Failing them, it went to the issue male of Henry's sister, and, in default of such issue, to the next heir male. As events had happened, the two young men, Arthur and John, had died unmarried, and Henry Blanchard had died, leaving no surviving child but a daughter. Under these circumstances, Allan was the next heir male pointed at by the will, and was now legally successor to the Thorpe Ambrose estate. Having made this extraordinary announcement, the lawyer requested to be favored with Mr. Armadale's instructions, and added in conclusion that he would be happy to furnish any further particulars that were desired. It was useless to waste time in wondering at an event which neither Allan nor his mother had ever thought of as even remotely possible. The only thing to be done was to go back to England at once. The next day found the travelers installed once more in their London hotel, and the day after the affair was placed in the proper professional hands. The inevitable corresponding and consulting ensued, and one by one the all-important particulars flowed in until the measure of information was pronounced to be full. This was the strange story of the three deaths. At the time when Mr. Brock had written to Mrs. Armadale's relatives to announce the news of her decease, that is to say, in the middle of the month of January, the family at Thorpe Ambrose numbered five persons. Arthur Blanchard, in possession of the estate, living in the great house with his mother, and Henry Blanchard, the uncle, living in the neighborhood. A widower with two children, a son, and a daughter. 
To cement the family connection still more closely, Arthur Blanchard was engaged to be married to his cousin. The wedding was to be celebrated with great local rejoicings in the coming summer, when the young lady had completed her twentieth year. The month of February had brought changes with it in the family position. Observing signs of delicacy in the health of his son, Mr. Henry Blanchard left Norfolk, taking the young man with him under medical advice to try the climate of Italy. Early in the ensuing month of March, Arthur Blanchard also left Thorpe Ambrose for a few days only on business which required his presence in London. The business took him into the city. Annoyed by the endless impediments in the streets, he returned westward by one of the river steamers, and, so returning, met his death. As the steamer left the wharf, he noticed a woman near him who had shown a singular hesitation in embarking, and who had been the last of the passengers to take her place in the vessel. She was neatly dressed in black silk, with a red paisley shawl over her shoulders, and she kept her face hidden behind a thick veil. Arthur Blanchard was struck by the rare grace and elegance of her figure, and he felt a young man's passing curiosity to see her face. She neither lifted her veil nor turned her head his way. After taking a few steps hesitatingly backward and forward on the deck, she walked away on a sudden to the stern of the vessel. In a minute more there was a cry of alarm from the man at the helm, and the engines were stopped immediately. The woman had thrown herself overboard. The passengers all rushed to the side of the vessel to look. Arthur Blanchard alone, without an instant's hesitation, jumped into the river. He was an excellent swimmer, and he reached the woman as she rose again to the surface after sinking for the first time. Help was at hand, and they were both brought safely ashore. The woman was taken to the nearest police station, and was soon restored to her senses, her preserver giving his name and address, as usual in such cases, to the inspector on duty, who wisely recommended him to get into a warm bath, and to send to his lodgings for dry clothes. Arthur Blanchard, who had never known an hour's illness since he was a child, laughed at the caution, and went back in a cab. The next day he was too ill to attend the examination before the magistrate. A fortnight afterward he was a dead man. The news of the calamity reached Henry Blanchard and his son at Milan, and within an hour of the time when they had received it they were on their way back to England. The snow on the Alps had loosened earlier than usual that year, and the passes were notoriously dangerous. The father and son, traveling in their own carriage, were met on the mountain by the mail returning, after sending the letters on by hand. Warnings which would have produced their effect under any ordinary circumstances were now vainly addressed to the two Englishmen. Their impatience to be at home again, after the catastrophe which had befallen their family, brooked no delay. Bribes lavishly offered to the postillions tempted them to go on. The carriage pursued its way, and was lost to view in the mist. When it was seen again, it was disinterred from the bottom of a precipice. The men, the horses, and the vehicle all crushed together under the wreck and ruin of an avalanche. So the three lives were mown down by death. So, in a clear sequence of events, a woman's suicide leap into a river had opened to Alan Armadale the succession to the Thorpe Ambrose estates. Who was the woman? The man who saved her life never knew. The magistrate who remanded her, 
the chaplain who exhorted her, the reporter who exhibited her in print never knew. It was recorded of her with surprise that, though most respectably dressed, she had nevertheless described herself as being in distress. She had expressed the deepest contrition, but had persisted in giving a name which was on the face of it a false one, in telling a commonplace story, which was manifestly an invention, and in refusing to the last to furnish any clues to her friends. A lady connected with a charitable institution, interested by her extreme elegance and beauty, had volunteered to take charge of her, and to bring her into a better frame of mind. The first day's experience of the penitent had been far from cheering, and the second day's experience had been conclusive. She had left the institution by stealth, and, though the visiting clergyman taking a special interest in the case had caused special efforts to be made, all search after her from that time forth had proved fruitless. While this useless investigation, undertaken at Allen's express desire, was in progress, the lawyers had settled the preliminary formalities connected with the succession to the property. All that remained was for the new master of Thorpe Ambrose to decide when he would personally establish himself on the estate of which he was now the legal possessor. Left necessarily to his own guidance in this matter, Allen settled it for himself in his usual hot-headed, generous way. He positively declined to take possession until Mrs. Blanchard and her niece, who had been permitted thus far, as a matter of courtesy, to remain in their old home, had recovered from the calamity that had befallen them, and were fit to decide for themselves what their future proceedings should be. A private correspondence followed this resolution, comprehending, on Allen's side, unlimited offers of everything he had to give, in a house which he had not yet seen, and, on the lady's side, a discreetly reluctant readiness to profit by the young gentleman's generosity in the matter of time. To the astonishment of his legal advisers, Allen entered their office one morning, accompanied by Mr. Brock, and announced, with perfect composure, that the ladies had been good enough to take his own arrangements off his hands, and that, in deference to their convenience, he meant to defer establishing himself at Thorpe Ambrose till that day two months. The lawyers stared at Allen, and Allen, returning the compliment, stared at the lawyers. "'What on earth are you wondering at, gentlemen?' he inquired, with a boyish bewilderment in his good-humored blue eyes. "'Why shouldn't I give the ladies their two months, if the ladies want them? Let the poor things take their own time and welcome. My rights? And my position? Oh, pooh, pooh! I'm in no hurry to be squire of the parish. It's not in my way. What do I mean to do for the two months?' what I should have done anyhow, whether the ladies had stayed or not. I mean to go cruising at sea. That's what I like. I've got a new yacht at home in Somersetshire, a yacht of my own building, and I'll tell you what, sir, continued Allen, seizing the head partner by the arm in the fervor of his friendly intentions. You look sadly in want of a holiday in the fresh air, and you shall come along with me on the trial trip of my new vessel. And your partners, too, if they like and the head clerk, who is the best fellow I ever met with in my life. Plenty of room. We'll all shake down together on the floor, and we'll give Mr. Brock a rug on the cabin table. Thorpe Ambrose be hanged. Do you mean to say, if you had built a vessel yourself, as I have, you would go to any estate in the three kingdoms, while your own little beauty was sitting like a duck on the water at home, and waiting for you to try her? 
You legal gentlemen are great hands at argument. What do you think of that argument? I think it's unanswerable, and I'm off to Somersetshire tomorrow. With those words, the new possessor of eight thousand a year dashed into the head clerk's office and invited that functionary to a cruise on the high seas, with a smack on the shoulder which was heard distinctly by his masters in the next room. The firm looked in her interrogative wonder at Mr. Brock, a client who could see a position among the landed gentry of England waiting for him, without being in a hurry to occupy it at the earliest possible opportunity, was a client of whom they possessed no previous experience. He must have been very oddly brought up, said the lawyers to the rector. <laughs> very oddly, said the rector to his lawyers. A last leap over one month more brought Mr. Brock to the present time, to the bedroom at Castletown, in which he was sitting, thinking, and to the anxiety which was obstinately intruding itself between him and his night's rest. That anxiety was no unfamiliar enemy to the rector's peace of mind. It had first found him out in Somersetshire six months since, and it had now followed him to the Isle of Man under the inveterately obtrusive form of Ozias Midwinter. The change in Allan's future prospects had worked no corresponding alteration in his perverse fancy for the castaway at the village inn. In the midst of the consultations with the lawyers, he had found time to visit Midwinter, and on the journey back with the rector, there was Allan's friend in the carriage, returning with them to Somersetshire by Allan's own invitation. The ex-usher's hair had grown again on his shaven skull, and his dress showed the renovating influence of an accession of pecuniary means. But in all other respects the man was unchanged. He met Mr. Brock's distrust with the old uncomplaining resignation to it. He maintained the same suspicious silence on the subject of his relatives and his early life. He spoke of Alan's kindness to him with the same undisciplined fervor of gratitude and surprise. "'I have done what I could, sir,' he said to Mr. Brock, while Alan was asleep in the railway carriage. "'I have kept out of Mr. Armadale's way, and I have not even answered his last letter to me. More than that is more than I can do. I don't ask you to consider my own feeling toward the only human creature who has never suspected and never ill-treated me. I can resist my own feeling, but I can't resist the young gentleman himself. There's not another like him in the world. If we are to be parted again, it must be his doing or yours, not mine. The dog's master has whistled, said this strange man, with a momentary outburst of the hidden passion in him, and a sudden springing of angry tears in his wild brown eyes. And it is hard, sir, to blame the dog when the dog comes. Once more Mr. Brock's humanity got the better of Mr. Brock's caution. He determined to wait and see what the coming days of social intercourse might bring forth. The days passed. The yacht was rigged and fitted for sea. A cruise was arranged to the Welsh coast. At midwinter the secret was the same midwinter still. Confinement on board a little vessel of five-and-thirty tons offered no great attraction to a man of Mr. Brock's time of life, but he sailed on the trial trip of the yacht nevertheless, rather than trust Allan alone with his new friend. Would the close companionship of the three on their cruise tempt the man into talking of his own affairs? No. He was ready enough on other subjects, especially if Allan led the way to them, but not a word escaped him about himself. Mr. Brock tried him with questions about his recent inheritance, 
and was answered as he had been answered once already at Somersetshire Inn. It was a curious coincidence, Midwinter admitted, that Mr. Armadale's prospects and his own prospects should both have unexpectedly changed for the better about the same time, but there the resemblance ended. It was no large fortune that had fallen into his lap, though it was enough for his wants. It had not reconciled him with his relations, for the money had not come to him as a matter of kindness, but as a matter of right. As for the circumstance which had led to his communicating with his family, it was not worth mentioning, seeing that the temporary renewal of intercourse which had followed had produced no friendly results. Nothing had come of it but the money, and with the money, an anxiety which troubled him sometimes, when he woke in the small hours of the morning. At those last words he became suddenly silent, as if for once his well-guarded tongue had betrayed him. Mr. Brock seized the opportunity, and bluntly asked him what the nature of the anxiety might be. Did it relate to money? No. It related to a letter which had been waiting for him for many years. Had he received the letter? Not yet. It had been left under charge of one of the partners in the firm which had managed the business of his inheritance for him. The partner had been absent from England, and the letter, locked up among his own private papers, could not be got at till he returned. He was expected back towards the latter part of that present May, and, if Midwinter could be sure where the cruise would take them to at the close of the month, he thought he would write and have the letter forwarded. Had he any family reasons to be anxious about it? None that he knew of. He was curious to see what had been waiting for him for many years, and that was all. So he answered the rector's questions, with his tawny face turned away over the low bulwark of the yacht, and his fishing line dragging in his supple brown hands. Favored by wind and weather, the little vessel had done wonders on her trial trip. Before the period fixed for the duration of the cruise had half expired, the yacht was as high up on the Welsh coast as Hollyhead, and Alan, eager for adventure in unknown regions, had declared boldly for an extension of the voyage northward to the Isle of Man. Having ascertained from reliable authority that the weather really promised well for a cruise in that quarter, and that, in the event of any unforeseen necessity for a turn, the railway was accessible by the steamer from Douglas to Liverpool, Mr. Brock agreed to his pupil's proposal. By that night's post, he wrote to Allen's lawyers and to his own rectory, indicating Douglas in the Isle of Man as the next address to which letters might be forwarded. At the post office he met Midwinter, who had just dropped the letter into the box. Remembering what he had said on board the yacht, Mr. Brock concluded that they had both taken the same precaution, and had ordered their correspondence to be forwarded to the same place. Late the next day they set sail for the Isle of Man. For a few hours all went well, but sunset brought with it the signs of a coming change. With the darkness the wind rose to a gale, and the question whether Alan and his journeyman had or had not built a stout sea-boat was seriously tested for the first time. All that night, after trying vainly to bear up for Hollyhead, the little vessel kept the sea and stood her trial bravely. The next morning the Isle of Man was in view, and the yacht was safe at Castletown. A survey by daylight of hull and rigging showed that all the damage done might be set aright in a week's time. The cruising party had accordingly remained at Castleton, 
Alan being occupied in superintending the repairs, Mr. Brock in exploring the neighborhood, and Midwinter in making daily pilgrimages on foot to Douglas and back to inquire for letters. The first of the cruising party who received the letter was Alan. More worries from those everlasting lawyers, was all he said when he had read the letter and had crumpled it up in his pocket. The rector's turn came next, before the week's sojourn at Castletown had expired. On the fifth day, he found a letter from Somersetshire waiting for him at the hotel. It had been brought there by midwinter, and it contained news which entirely overthrew all Mr. Brock's holiday plans. The clergyman who had undertaken to do duty for him in his absence had been unexpectedly summoned home again, and Mr. Brock had no choice, the day of the week being Friday, but to cross the next morning from Douglas to Liverpool and get back by railway on Saturday night in time for Sunday's service. Having read his letter and resigned himself to his altered circumstances as patiently as he might, the rector passed next to a question that pressed for serious consideration in its turn. Burdened with the heavy responsibility towards Alan, and conscious of his own undiminished distrust of Alan's new friend, how was he to act in the emergency that now beset him towards the two young men who had been his companions on the cruise? Mr. Brock had first asked himself that awkward question on the Friday afternoon, and he was still trying vainly to answer it, alone in his own room, at one o'clock on the Saturday morning. It was then only the end of May, and the residence of the ladies at Tharp Ambrose, unless they chose to shorten it of their own accord, would not expire till the middle of June. Even if the repairs of the yacht had been completed, which was not the case, there was no possible pretense for hurrying Alan back to Somersetshire. But one other alternative remained, to leave him where he was. In other words, to leave him, at the turning point of his life, under the sole influence of a man whom he had first met with as a castaway at a village inn, and who was still, to all practical purposes, a total stranger to him. In despair of obtaining any better means of enlightenment to guide his decision, Mr. Brock reverted to the impression which Midwinter had produced on his own mind in the familiarity of the cruise. Young as he was, the ex-usher had evidently lived a varied life. He could speak of books like a man who re had really enjoyed them. He could take his turn at the helm like a sailor who knew his duty. He could cook and climb the rigging and lay the cloth for dinner with an odd delight in the exhibition of his own dexterity. The display of these and other qualities like them, as his spirits rose with the cruise, had revealed the secret of his attraction for Alan plainly enough. But had all disclosures rested there? Had the man let no chance light in on his character in the rector's presence? Very little, and that little did not set him forth in a morally alluring aspect. His way in the world had lain evidently in doubtful places. Familiarity with the small villainies of vagabonds peeped out of him now and then, and, more significant still, he habitually slept the light, suspicious sleep of a man who has been accustomed to close his eyes in doubt of the company under the same roof with him. Down to the very latest moment of the rector's experience of him, down to that present Friday night, his conduct had been persistently secret and unaccountable to the very last. After bringing Mr. Brock's letter to the hotel, he had mysteriously disappeared from the house 
without leaving any message for his companions, and without letting anybody see whether he had or had not received a letter himself. At nightfall he had come back stealthily in the darkness, had been caught on the stairs by Allan, eager to tell him of the change in the rector's plans, had listened to the news without a word of remark, and had ended by sulkily locking himself into his own room. What was there in his favor to set against such revelations of his character as these, against his wandering eyes, his obstinate reserve with the rector, his ominous silence on the subject of family and friends? Little or nothing, the sum of all his merits began and ended with his gratitude to Alan. Mr. Brock left his seat on the side of the bed, trimmed his candle, and, still lost in his own thoughts, looked out absently at the night. The change of place brought no new ideas with it. His retrospect over his own past life had amply satisfied him that his present sense of responsibility rested on no merely fanciful grounds, and, having brought him to that point, had left him there, standing at that window, and seeing nothing but the total darkness in his own mind faithfully reflected by the total darkness of the night. If I only had a friend to apply to, thought the rector, if I could only find someone to help me in this miserable place. At the moment when the aspiration crossed his mind, it was suddenly answered by a low knock at the door, and a voice said softly in the passage outside, Let me come in. After an instant's pause to steady his nerves, Mr. Brock opened the door and found himself, at one o'clock in the morning, standing face to face on the threshold of his own bedroom with Ozias Midwinter. "'Are you ill?' asked the rector, as soon as his astonishment would allow him to speak. "'I have come here to make a clean breast of it,' was the strange answer. "'Will you let me in?' With those words he walked into the room, his eyes on the ground, his lips ashy pale, and his hand holding something hidden behind him. I saw the light under your door, he went on, without looking up, and without moving his hand. And I know the trouble on your mind which is keeping you from your rest. You are going away tomorrow morning, and you don't like leaving Mr. Armadale alone with a stranger like me. Startled as he was, Mr. Brock saw the serious necessity of being plain with a man who had come at that time and had said those words to him. "'You have guessed right,' he answered. "'I stand in the place of a father to Alan Armadale, and I am naturally unwilling to leave him, at his age, with a man whom I don't know.' Ozias Midwinter took a step forward to the table. His wandering eyes rested on the rector's New Testament, which was one of the objects lying on it. "'You have read that book,' in the years of a long life, to many congregations, he said. Has it taught you mercy to your miserable fellow creatures? Without waiting to be answered, he looked Mr. Brock in the face for the first time and brought his hidden hand slowly into view. Read that, he said, and for Christ's sake, pity me when you know who I am. He laid a letter of many pages on the table. It was the letter that Mr. Neal had posted at Wildbad nineteen years since. End of Book One, Chapter One. Recording by Alan Winteroud. Boomcoach.blogspot.com.